listeners, welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy, and I will be your host for today's episode. Today, we are talking out of the ashes, uncovering history with AI. Buried, burnt, and bygone. An entire library of ancient scrolls was buried under the ashen lava of Mount Vesuvius in the city of Herculaneum, a Roman village less than 20 kilometers from the famous city of Pompeii. But with some amazing new technology, these scrolls are being unrolled, at least digitally, and we are able to peer through the charred ash and carbon to read them for the first time in nearly 2,000 years. Wes, Andy, and Troy get together on this week's episode to talk about the Herculaneum papyri and the other advances in technology that have an impact on helping us have confidence in the historical evidence of the Bible. Let's get into it. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy. I'm here today with Andy and Wes on this beautiful sunny day, at least least in BC. What about you guys? How are we doing? Well, Andy's here in BC, so I'm not going to ask you, but Wes, how are you doing, man? (laughs) Yeah, I'm doing well. Uh, we always talk about the weather when, when we start off, but I guess that's relatable to everybody. Okay, well, never it's mind. just warm. It's just warm here. I feel like we haven't had any real snow. El Nino, man. So I'm wondering mm. why I put all my snow tires on, but it's okay. I'll get over it. <laughs> right. We do always talk about weather. So instead, I'm going to ask you, have you had any heard any horrible dad jokes this, this week? Horrible dad jokes. Well, we are going to jump into a topic uh, that's just erupting with lots of different. Disgusting. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely yeah. disgusting. For, that's truly amazing. <laughs> we just lost four subscribers because yeah. of how quick you came up with that. <laughs> well, they don't know why. They don't know why that's a good dad joke yet. Um, well, but I can tell you guys lava it. So oh we're gonna. My word. <laughs> The audacity to get... You know what? Forget it. Listeners, we're going to get right into this conversation. (laughs) So, so just to bring the listeners into the conversation, what we're going to be talking about today is a a technological advance in a series of manuscripts that were covered or buried by Mount Vesuvius. If you remember your when did you when did you guys learn about Mount Vesuvius and uh, well I think Andy climbed and, it as a child when he was <laughs> yeah Andy Andy summit. climbed it when he was yeah. twelve years old yeah. um, but I think usually you learn about Vesuvius and uh, now I'm blanking on the Pompeii. the town Pompeii <gasps> Pompeii yeah in elementary school yeah. but um, so Mount Vesuvius in when was it around seventy A D yeah. Uh, 79, something like that, it erupted and it covered uh, the city of Pompeii. And so Mm -hmm. what's left are these kind of spaces where bodies used to be. They filled them with plaster casts and you have these like perfectly preserved bodies of these people that were literally just buried alive. You literally have a time capsule from 2000 years ago. And not a cute one (laughs) with your favorite movies. And it it preserved like everything, Mm -hmm. the and the lava and just it preserved everything and so a lot of our paintings that we have from that era you look at Pompeii like Mm -hmm. even there's a there's a fresco of Alexander the Great which is the only one we have that's colorized of Alexander the Great so in fact I was listening to this review done by a scholar on the new Alexander the Great documentary that's on Netflix. And one of his critiques was, actually, we have this image in Pompeii of Alexander the Great, and he's got brown hair and brown eyes, and the actor has blue eyes and blonde hair. And he's like, you know, that's that's aside from the point. But but even the (laughs) fact that 
we have that kind of stuff is is cool. Yeah. You it know, is. we can it's this little time capsule. Well, and one of the things that I saw from Pompeii that honestly, I don't know about you guys, but I just geek out over where they're, you know, they're uncovering these cities that were covered in ash. And one of the things that they uncovered was a lot of different restaurants, if you will, like little food stalls that people mm. would go and and along them they would have various paintings on the walls and whatnot. And it's it's so fascinating to me, like it and so unique to get a glimpse. It's like it's like going back in time and seeing what kind of art did they put on their on their walls and how did they uh you know stylize their restaurants, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason we're talking about it today is because there's an adjacent city to Pompeii called Herculaneum. And Herculaneum was also buried. But one of the things that was specifically buried that is what we're going to talk about today is there was an entire library that was completely covered over by lava. And what it did is it burnt the scrolls into this like crisp burrito. Mm, I love burritos. um, That just got like, I'm sure you do. A manuscript burrito. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a manuscript burrito. Yeah, I guess I, I was asking for that one by using that as an analogy. But one of the things, they've, they discovered this in the 1700s, and since the 18th century, they've been trying to figure out, is there any way that we can unroll these? And there were some attempts in the 17th, uh, or in the 18th and 19th centuries that were just disastrous and just ended up crumbling these things. But um, there was a group that... Uh, put out a challenge. It's literally called the Vesuvius Challenge. And the grand prize was $700,000. And each year they've been giving different technological developers uh, kind of portions of that grand prize Mm -hmm. for uncovering different aspects of being able to identify a letter here or there by using x-rays. But what was it, last week? A group solved it. And so, which is pretty significant. They awarded them because up until this point in in 2023, they'd solved like five percent of it, and then yeah, they, and then all of a sudden here we are, you know, not that long later, and they've now uncovered you know 94 percent of it, like pretty much everything that's there. And one of the things that's unique about this too, by the way, just to kind of further explain what Wes was talking about, is that they had this prize. It was quite smart how they did it. They had it staged so that there were like these initial prizes that people could win for solving, you know, the the more initial aspects. And so it was a way to, you know, entice people to get involved, to make these smaller discoveries, and then to be able to use that money to be able to buy more equipment and stuff to make further discoveries. And really it worked. And then ultimately yeah. we had three guys that where the leaders in this thing teamed up and and then ultimately solved it. This this is really interesting too, by the way, that this was open sourced. So mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. as Wes was saying, they took CT scans of this uh, out in Oxford, like like some incredible technology they're they're using on this, and then they made it available to people and said, okay, here you go, uh, see if you can create some algorithms that can unwrap this thing. Yeah. And listeners, we'll put the actual link to the website that you guys can check out for yourselves at the at the end of the show, because it is pretty intriguing when you're looking at this and it's they're showing you the scrolls they are showing you some some of the machinery machinery that they used. We released three these high resolution CT scans of the scrolls and we offered more than one million in prizes. 
put forward by many generous donors. So there's this 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 open form of people that are trying to do it, but then there's this backing behind it that is obviously immense, and it looks it looks really really cool. So now this was one burnt squirrel burrito out of around 800, if I understand correctly. And Wes, when they unraveled this thing virtually using some complicated AI algorithms, what did they read? Uh, it, there were a number of philosophical texts. Um, I think this one was, correct me if I'm wrong, it was Epicurean yeah. uh, philosophy, uh, Philodemus. And uh, there was some writing about music and food and the pleasure of life. So very much like a, not, not a religious text, mm -hmm. uh, but a, a philosophical text. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting. Like 2000 years later, times haven't changed. What, what, you know, what were they writing on? You know, like ultimately kind of the meaning of life question from an Epicurean perspective of how do you get the most pleasure out of life? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of things haven't changed in what we write about and, and what's popular. There's actually, there's a second century joke book in Greek called the Philologos, which is uh, the, the love of laughter. And some of the jokes in there, you'd be surprised because uh, I found an English translation and I tried to uh, find the Greek one to see like how close they were. And there's like fart jokes. There's like your <laughs> yes. mom jokes. Your mom there's, jokes? Like, your mother. Yeah. <laughs> there are some really funny ones here. I'll just uh, quickly, I'll tell you some of my favorites. Um, there was, uh, there was this slaver. So someone who sells slaves, sells servants, household slaves. And, uh, he was selling, uh, he had this slave who was very healthy and he sold it to a man and the man takes it home. And within a week, the, the slave falls ill and dies. And so he goes back to the slaver and he says, you know, we have a problem. You owe me my money back because the slave that I bought you to work in my house died. And the slaver says, oh, I, I don't think that possibly could have happened. He never did anything like that to me. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, da so, dad jokes even back then. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. I mean, like Monty Python skits, yeah. right? So, yeah. it, you know, not much really changes in terms of what people are. You know, Wes, your PhD work is in the area of manuscripts. So you're, you're reading manuscripts mm -hmm. all the time, right? Yeah, <laughs> I am. Every Monday at Manuscript Monday. <laughs> yeah. No, but if I understood correctly, part of your doctoral work is like you got like a chunk of manuscripts that you go through and translate. Is is that right? Yeah, I try transcribe a lot of manuscripts. So I'm looking at manuscripts between the second and third centuries. So I have, in fact, I was collating them uh, this morning because I, ha I had to meet my uh, my academic committee earlier today. And so I have seven manuscripts from the second century that I look at specifically, one that could be second or third century, and then 28 manuscripts that are third century wow. um, specifically. So I'm, you know, combing through those on, on a weekly basis and looking for, I don't actually look at the text. Uh, I'm much more nerdy than that. I, I look at the scribal notations in the text. So I'm literally going through and counting the spaces between the words to try to figure out if they are, uh, you know, having dividing the text in, in certain ways or whether they're indenting or putting marginal notes and that kind of stuff. What, what so, are a lot of these texts talking about? Oh, mine are Christian texts. Um, so most of them are, are scriptural, but not all of them. So I am looking at a few other Christian documents and even a couple of apocryphal documents because 
The apocryphal manuscripts try to copy some of the aspects of the Christian manuscripts. So we have four manuscripts of the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, three of them are from the second century from the city of Oxyrhynchus. Mm -hmm. And so uh, those are in there in my pile. Um, and then the, the fourth century manuscript of the Gospel of Thomas, which is our only full copy from the Nagamadi Library, is actually fourth century. So it's out of my window. But I do refer to it occasionally because it's kind of the culmination of where the Gospel of Thomas comes together. But they're they're Christian documents. You know, okay. I think that's a great segue uh, into a, an event we've got coming up at the end of the month. On February 29th, we've got a premiere coming of our new series called Can I Trust the Bible? And then we've got the conference coming on March 1st, 2nd. When do you guys want to just give some details on that? Yep, sure can. If you were to head to our website at apologeticscanada.com. Um, you'll see that we we are promoting the the premiere there, and it's going to be a really good time. It's going to be at Columbia Bible College, and one of the caterers we have there is called Afterthoughts, and they are apparently, according to the locals, it is all the rage. It's amazing, and also I can confirm that. And also our intern, Lysandria, we, you know, we had to really task her with the hard efforts of going in there and checking <laughs> it out, and so. It was painful for her to tell us that it was going to be fantastic and it's going to be a really good night because this is one of those video series that I personally just, I would love to see it on a, some kind of streaming platform because it's done at that quality. Like it really, really is done at that quality. Not just the shots that you're going to see, but the way that the guys really unpack. Like this, this video series in and of itself is going to raise the question, obviously, can I trust the Bible? And for many people, believers and not. This is a very crucial conversation, a very crucial question to ask. And so make sure you come out to the premiere because at the conference, you will not be able to see the full series. You'll only get the trailer. It's interesting you should say that, by the way, uh, Troy. I just had, we're, we've been doing Question Christianity where people can come and ask whatever questions they want. And it's been great. I mean, we've had just a packed house. And the questions, so many questions around the subject of, can I trust the Bible? This is a very... Mm relevant topic. Love to love to have you out. For that, just as a way of reminder, Wes and I in June, we're in Egypt filming that. So as Wes talks about things like the Nag Hammadi Library or Oxrinkus and various other things, like we actually went to those places and where these yeah. different documents were found and, and explain that. Then March 1st, 2nd is the conference. Would love to have you out to that. Tickets are still available so you can go online and, and grab those. Wes is going to be here. Troy's going to be there. I'm going to be there. Uh, and then we got a host of other great uh, scholars and thinkers that are going to be presenting both in main sessions and breakout sessions. Don't want to miss it. It's going to be it's going to be great. And tickets are selling fast, so make sure that uh, that you jump on that. So, Wes and Troy, as we're talking about this recent advancement in AI technology to un literally unravel ancient scrolls that have been burnt. You know what? How do we see this technology being used in other areas? And so, one one question I've got immediately, particularly for you, Wes, is: I mean, thus far from what we know, these documents are not Christian documents uh, or biblical documents, from what we know in this find. But do we have other burnt Christian documents that this kind of technology could be used on? Yeah, we do, and it has been. I mean, I think the Vesuvius scrolls are a little bit unusual in the fact that they were so burnt. They were literally covered in lava. And so there was a um, a trickiness to finding out what could possibly be on there. But 
a little more recent than the 18th century, in Israel, we did actually find there was a scroll that was found in 1970 in the area of En Gedi in Israel, which is on, it's close to the West Bank. And they discovered this scroll that had been charred, it had been burnt. I don't know if they know how, it wasn't covered in lava, but it was very similar to the Vesuvius scrolls in the sense that it was, you know, a burnt burrito of sorts. And so they used an aspect of this technology of what's called uh, microtomography, which is like a micro CT scan, where they run radiation through it, which is what they do with the Vesuvius scrolls as well. And the the material on the scroll, the ink, and then the material that it was written on, bounce back and give like a different wavelength and so come up in different colors. And they were actually able to digitally unwrap this scroll, which was found in Israel. And it, it turned out to be a, uh, a section of Leviticus. And so when they did unroll it, they were able to see, you know, we have Leviticus chapter one right there. And so this was, it was a, a second or third century BC manuscript, but it's interesting that we're able to do these things with the help of technology. Yeah. And it's, it's broadening our understanding. The more evidence we have, the more we can say that what we have now is what they were reading in the ancient world. Mm. And I think it's, it's good to point out that these discoveries, as important as they are, they don't necessarily change the way that we understand the text in a radical way. What they do is they help to confirm all of the things that have been believed all the way along. Yeah. So when we open up an English translation of Leviticus, and even if what we're reading comes from manuscripts that were later than, say, the Engedi scroll, when we do find the Engedi scroll, what it does is it just confirms that even though we are working from later manuscripts, the earlier manuscripts that are discovered are very similar, if not exact. And so in that sense, I think we say in, in the Can I Trust the Bible series, Andy, and I say in my talk, is that as time goes on, we're not actually getting farther away from the text, we're getting closer mm -hmm. to the text. Even though the time frame is further on, because of these discoveries, we're actually able to have like a, a telescope that makes us able to look further back. So, so essentially what you're saying, it gives us a paper trail when we're, especially in, you know, looking at the, the gospel, looking at, at scripture, it's, it's showing us that, think in some ways that there's nothing new under the sun. Like many of the conversations that we're finding or even uh, the way these texts are kind of unpacking culture, we're seeing, okay, we're, we're actually not that different. And this is what confirms it. So many of these conversations of saying, hey, we're dealing with different things just it almost kind of puts them to bed. Would you Would you agree? Yeah, it's corroborative. Yeah. It, it corroborates what we believed all the way along. And as technological advancements are able to look at something like these burnt burritos and unroll them and confirm that, you know, more and more that was maybe perceived as off limits mm -hmm. is now we're able to look at these things. We're able to say, oh, okay, there is something there. And we can read it and we can identify it as Leviticus chapter one. Mm -hmm. And then we compare it to our later manuscripts and we see not only does it read like we have, but it testifies to the faithfulness of those who are copying these things all the way along. Mm. You know, on that note, I think it's important for people to appreciate that you kind of kind of you kinda need to calibrate your expectations of archaeological findings. Mm. The reality mm. is, is for something like paper. 
to survive for hmm. 2000 years is very it, like it takes extreme conditions such as you know a lava a volcano you know vulca- yeah they, yeah a volcano erupting that has created this little time capsule unique to what you and I saw in Egypt west that I thought was quite fascinating is we went to one site Oxrhynchus where and this is often the case in archaeology that some of the best things that we find are in the garbage dump. Mm. And in this case, they found a lot uh, in that garbage dump where, you know, where often then you got to ask yourself, well, what gets thrown in the garbage? Well, it's not going to be your best stuff. It's yeah. often going to be mm. obviously the things that you're, you're throwing away. And so you kind of have to adjust your expectations for what I'm going to find in archaeology and, if anything, I, I got to say, I'm just, I'm amazed at how much we have found and that yeah. has survived, particularly in places like Egypt. And well, this one, by the way, this is kind of a bit of a shocker just in general. And this is what you've said to me. I still have a hard time believing it, Wes. I mean, you read this somewhere, that in Egypt, what is it? They've, they, you, you go ahead and say it, like what amount they've actually uncovered in Egypt. We think we've only discovered 1% of everything from ancient Egypt, which sounds crazy. But if you think about the fact that we are closer to Cleopatra living than Cleopatra was to the building of the pyramids. Like ancient Egypt Mm. is so old. (laughs) So ancient. (laughs) And and so long of a time period, which actually, if we're talking about these technological advancements— really shows how much of a leap and a bound we've taken in the last hundred years in terms of technological Mm -hmm. advancement. Because the difference in technology and uh, warfare and uh, architecture and between like when they were building the pyramids and and when Cleopatra was around, it was not that vast. They were still fighting with chariots and swords. Whereas we literally went from World War I in, you know, the beginning of the 20th Mm -hmm. century where horses were involved to fighter jets and nuclear armed warheads. And like, we've taken some pretty crazy leaps, but I mean, that's a bit of an aside, but yeah, if you think about it, there's just so much stuff buried in the sands of Egypt and really everywhere. Right. But I think Egypt is unique because like you and I found Andy is that particularly in, in areas like um, upper Egypt is just so dry that it preserves so much. But even, Andy, when you and I were out at the Valley of the Kings, there were security cameras everywhere. And a part of the reason for that was because they don't know how many more tombs are out there. Mm -hmm. And they don't know what they haven't discovered yet. And grave robbing and the black market antiquities trade is a big problem in Egypt. And so they got to know if people are out there with shovels trying to find, you know, the next Tutankhamun's tomb. See, see, I was going to ask that because... I know this can this sometimes comes up when you know I'm watching a video of oh they've just uncovered this new tomb. When does that go too far? Right as we're talking about technological advancement, we can see more, we can do more. What is the difference between you know uh, the mm. British Museum going into Egypt, finding stuff, taking it and putting it in their museum versus the grave robber finding it, digging it up, going and selling it on the black market? Like there's still an exchange financially happening, mm. as far as I'm aware, but. Is it possible for us to go too far? You know, that that was someone's grave, right? And it's like, I don't think anyone's going to dig up mine, <laughs> but we don't know. We don't, you know, yeah, we don't 4, know. 4,000 years. <laughs> yeah, give it some time. You might find yeah. a hat or so. 
<laughs> don't sell don't sell yourself short. There's a love God, love people hat yeah, this, in here. This is true. Um, this is true. <laughs> there's a yeah, I think I think that's always a conversation. I mean, there's this this joke that I've heard in like uh, circles with archaeology that uh, you know, why are the pyramids in Egypt? And the answer is because they're too heavy to take to England and put in the British Museum. <laughs> and, yeah. and the joke there is that there, I mean, there's a lot of antiquities in the British Museum which during the colonial era are still pretty controversial. I mean, Andy, when Andy and I went to Germany, we went to the Pergamon Museum and saw the Ishtar Gate, which is the the second major gate leading into Babylon. And there's a lot of controversy around that (laughs) artifact because they literally, the Germans went in the early 20th century, dug this thing up, took it apart piece by piece, shipped it back to Europe and rebuilt it in Berlin. And they kind of did it without letting the Iraqi government know. Um, And so there's a lot of controversy about that. I think when it comes to archaeology, one of the things that if you study archaeology formally, you always find out is that there's a certain aspect of destruction that's involved no matter what, because you're pulling something out of the ground. And so that's what a lot of archaeologists will tell you. You know, there is scientific aspects of archaeology, but archaeology is not a science. And it's not a science because... When you're pulling something out of the ground and you're inspecting it, there's no reproducibility to that action. Mm. So you're always going to have some aspect of destruction that's involved, even with the fact that you're going through these layers of strata within the geological layers to try to find something that's older. But you're breaking through, you know, a layer that's from the Roman era and a layer that's from the Byzantine era and a layer that's from, you know, the Ptolemaic era. And you're going through these different levels and you're essentially destroying evidence. It might be minor, but y- you are destroying evidence. Yeah. So there's always going to be a kind of a complexity to even just the field of archaeology. And then, yeah, also the trickiness of the fact that you're, you know, pulling someone's literal corpse out of a yeah. tomb. Yeah. Let's uh, before we wrap up this conversation, let's just talk about the AI component of mm-hmm. all of this and how it's being used in different ways right now. On, on the one hand. Uh, AI has been just a great tool that is being used in all sorts of ways. I know it also is creating a lot of fear for pe- some people. Uh, and in particular, I think it creates some fear <clears throat> because there is a bit of this mystique that's going on or that at least people have of how AI is working. So I want to just talk about that. It, on the one hand, AI is being used to do some great stuff, such as uh, being used to help uh, read uh, cuneiform, for example, which if you haven't seen, this is writing that's usually done on clay tablets that's very difficult to read, and there can be pieces missing. But through using technology, and particularly AI, has allowed for these things to be read and to actually, in some regards, be pieced back together. One of the things I think is cool about this, and you've seen quite a bit of, a, of this, Wes, is open sourcing this. So, getting a lot more information online for people to be able to look at than ever before from ancient manuscripts, biblical or otherwise, and including these cuneiform uh, documents, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The cool part of that conversation is that what's being done with cuneiform tablets, which um, just expand upon that further, that we're talking about like ancient Babylonian, Assyrian, um, Akkadian documents. So a cuneiform means wedge shaped and they would have a little wedge shaped stick and uh, you might have seen, you know, uh, images of these tablets and they got these little like um, these little stick shapes all over them. 
And and that's a form of how they would write the ancient uh, Babylonian and um, Ugaritic and uh, Akkadian languages. Some of our earliest forms well, of writing that we have. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Some literally our earliest forms of writing that we have. The earliest stories, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, which go back three, four thousand years. So, the, but because they're thousands of years old, sections are missing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what some of these AI programs have done is they've mapped out the patterns of how cuneiform is written and then tried to fill in the blanks with an estimation to the best possibility of what could be written there. So it's not that we're saying this was written there, but based on the way and style, you could argue the syntax and grammar, although that may or may not uh, actually fit for... uh, ancient Akkadian, maybe anachronistic, but those types of things to fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's, I mean, heads and tails over what we were able to do before. Yeah, right. um, you know, you might have some genius somewhere who's trying to contemplate that, but when you get computers involved and you get AI programs involved, you're able to just do that on not just with a few tablets, but on a massive level and really unlock potentially what things that um, haven't been read for thousands of years, actually said. Yeah. Now, I want to just talk quickly here then about the AI portion of what's happening, because I find that there's some misunderstanding. I think in some regards these days, if you say AI, it, it could be with anything. It's almost like it's magic. That, yeah. Oh, you know, just it's, it's AI. It's either magic or iRobot. <laughs> <laughs> or it's just Terminator. But yeah. I just want people to be careful here when they're hearing that because AI isn't magic. And ultimately what we're talking about is that when actually when we talk about AI, we're talking about a grouping of various algorithms that do something that's called machine learning. And these mm. algorithms, which we've had for a long time, I probably mentioned this in the show, we've, they were invented in the 70s and 80s. Where we're at now technologically is in a place where we've got the tech to actually run these algorithms. And more than that, we've got the data necessary to process them. And this becomes particularly uh, uh, like essential. We take these burnt burritos, for example, they're packed full of information. So you could take that information then and put it through these algorithms that are able to process this information to be able to do things that would take us a really long time to do. So you, because you're applying this learning and they, these algorithms are able to just continue, continue learning till they can unmap, you know, this burnt up scroll, for example. But again, but it's not magic. And this is one thing that that is also helpful to appreciate. There are lots of documents that we uncover in archaeology of languages that we don't know how to read. We, we They are what we'd call a dead language. We've lost the meaning. And sometimes I've heard people go, oh, okay, this is so great. AI is going to solve all of these dead languages. And it's like, uh, no, it's not. No. AI could, you know, can process information. It can do some really interesting things, but it can't bring back the meaning of a dead language. Uh, it's, it's still dead. Yeah. The only reason we've been able to bring back the meaning of certain languages, such as ancient Egyptian or the like, is because there were other languages that were playing off of those like with the Rosetta Stone that gave us clues to be able to figure it out. It's mm. kind of like talking with your friend that speaks a different language. If they're speaking that other language and they can give you clues, you can start to figure out the language. Well, the same thing can happen with writing and then AI could 
be quite good at you know figuring that out, but yeah. you would need to have those clues kind of baked in. One area that I'm seeing this being used, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but I think it's very interesting, is we uncover a lot of games in archaeology that are dead games. We don't know how the game hmm. was played. So they can put these games into an AI algorithm and say, okay, well, what are the possible ways that this game could be played? That's interesting. It, it is. And at the end of the day, what you ultimately have, though, is what is possibly a game. Possible. What is possibly all the game pieces and what are possible ways to play that game. Uh, that That's at best what you've got. And it takes out some of the guesswork that's involved. Because I think... We as people often have these blind spots. We we jump to assumptions on mm. certain things, or if we're trying to find a conclusion, we might have a bias there that's not helping us in the way that we're analyzing the data. Yeah. And so not that there isn't some sort of background that needs to be coded into the AI program in order for them to facilitate the actual investigation, but I think you know I see all all the I see a lot of posts online about um, uh, certain things within the ancient world that are very similar. You know, well, oh well, the the Mesoamericans are building pyramids and the Egyptians are building pyramids. There must be some connection, and an AI program is going to weed out those kind of mistakes that we make where we're jumping to assumptions or we're making correlation fallacies or those types of things and maybe make it a little bit too data-driven and then we need to come in and introduce some sort of uh, human aspect of the logical thinking. But it really does help us to develop and understand things that otherwise wouldn't have been. Yeah, I think... AI is always going to create tension with with people, but I think it's just it's just really important not to not to jump to conclusions with it, but also don't forsake the human experience and put all your hope and faith in in an AI program because as it as much as like you're saying it's machine learning, it has been programmed that way. You know, it's not intelligent in and of itself. It has been given code. It's been given programming to to do things that would take us. Maybe may, I, I'm hard pressed to say. Maybe you guys disagree. I'm hard pressed to say things that we could never do, but maybe more so at the speed. Like it can do it at a much greater speed than we could. You take something like mm -hmm. a paragraph you put into Chat GPT. Hey, make this sound suitable for me speaking to young adults. Now I could do that. I could go through different grammatical processes. I could send it to an editor, but Chat GPT can do that for me quickly. And so I don't know. I think we just can't run away with it. Well, it's always good to remember that we created AI algorithms, and that in fact, it's just a, another tool, technological tool that we're yeah. using, and it's just a really effective one for certain things. For certain and things. I'm, for one, thankful that we've been able to use it on these burnt burritos, and I'm really looking forward mm -hmm. to seeing what these other 800-some-odd manuscripts are saying. But then there's more than that, which is really interesting, that this library was multi-layered. This is just one layer. They still have another a layer or two to uncover in this library. So who knows how many more manuscripts are in there and mm -hmm. what this will eventually develop. At the moment, from what I hear, it, even with the tech we've currently got, to translate all 800 would cost around a billion dollars, if I understand correctly. So they're hoping that they're going to be able to automate this process now that they've figured out one of these, and then they'll be mm -hmm. able to you know, drive the cost down substantially as they translate the rest of these scrolls, which is, 
I think it's going to be fascinating. I'm excited mm-hmm. to to see what develops and what kind of ancient literary treasures that that we've got. Yeah, someone's got to phone Elon Musk, get him interested in the subject. Yeah, <laughs> or or angry it's with it, and then. Tesla, Tesla money. Yeah. Or angry with it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think, um, and, and I think this is a a good place to start wrapping things up, but uh, I find that when we talk about archeology span and, and specifically when we're talking about biblical archeology, span I think it's important to preface by saying that archeological discoveries confirm and corroborate things like places and figures and times. They're not like, they're not proofs necessarily. So remnants from ancient antiquity point to the reliability and historicity of the Bible, but they're not a direct evidence that all the details about those stories are necessarily true. Hmm. Now, I think those stories are true, but I see a lot of people talking about archaeology, specifically online in certain posts, and I think we need to be careful not to make too much of the data. So this stuff is very important. These technological advancements are very important because they start to create evidence that we can use to corroborate things like, okay, you know, we have this Leviticus scroll. It reads like we read our Leviticus passages today. Or, you know, here's a gate that has Gad um, inscribed on it. Well, um, Goliath was from Gad. Um, Or, you know, the city of Ur is discovered, and that's where Abraham is from. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's a proof that Abraham existed. But these are pieces of data that we can build up to show the Bible is talking about real places in real times. And yeah. so when we're talking about archaeology, it's not this surefire you know, silver bullet, but it is it is really important to create this multi-layered evidence pile that we have in terms of what we can point to as Christians. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, listeners, I don't know, and viewers, I guess, it's moments and conversations like these that I really appreciate because I just get to watch you guys nerd out and just kind of sit and be a, be a student of these things. But if this doesn't get your feet wet for the conference that we have coming up, then I, I honestly don't know what will. And the video series, it is going to be a, a really, really exciting next couple of months with what is coming out of AC. So we really do um, hope that you come to the conference. Registration is obviously available as well as for the premiere and the, Honestly, this this series is going to be it's going to be a really exciting one, a really exciting one to see and the conversations that are going to come from it. So make sure you guys you guys sign up for it. Wes, you had something to say. One could say it's going to be a magnificent. Oh no, I'm messing yep. it up already. Yeah, I'm yeah. To force it. yeah. Magnificent. <laughs> it's going to be magnificent. Wow. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everyone. I uh, there's a that's another five subscribers just gone. I'm watching it. There's, there it goes. But listeners, thank you so much for listening to the AC podcast. Make sure to like and subscribe on all of your favorite platforms, especially YouTube. And uh, make sure you head to our events page, apologeticscanada.com/events for more details on the conference, on the premiere, as well as the other things we got going on. But you know the drill. You know the motto. Till next time. Love God. Love people. Bye for now. Podcast. Podcast.